Um, but it is a fact that uh, I was licensed by Parliament some time ago now to forge, or rather to counterfeit the British currency, the Swiss currency, and the American currency while I was working for the Bank of England. And, and the purpose was not clandestine, but in order to investigate banknote design so that we could make them even more, uh, you know, um, proof of uh, counterfeit than they were before. But I'm very proud to say that when I'd successfully counterfeited all the major world's currencies, and they were in the safe there, the, the actual designer of the British banknotes thought mine were genuine, which I thought was... <laughs> quite an accolade. So, if the Lord lets me down, I have a second string to my bow. <laughs> Amen. Well, let's, let's turn, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 11. What I'm going to share with you today has been growing in my spirit over a period of certainly three years. In fact, I can't remember exactly when it started, but it's getting clearer and clearer. And I want to just say in the very beginning, I believe that the devil is a great robber. Do you agree with that? He's a thief and then he's a robber. And one of the ways that he robs the church of God is by establishing doctrines which give him far more standing and power than he really has. With the result that we're programmed in our minds not to go against his kingdom with the authority that we really have. For example, the eschatology of disaster that you and I were probably brought up on, that the devil's going to get stronger and stronger, the church is going to get weaker and weaker, and all we can look forward to is increasing apostasy, and just before the devil wipes the church out completely, we'll have the sudden appearing of Jesus rescuing us out of an ever-increasingly bad situation. Now that was roughly the eschatology that I was brought up on. And the rapture was our salvation, and all we could expect until that sudden day was that things would get worse and worse. Which is exactly the way the devil wanted us to think. So we didn't think in terms of victory. And I remember vividly in, I forget exactly when now, but in the um, mid-60s when the first book by David Wilkerson came out the cross and the switchblade. And it was the first thing, I think, that Christians had ever seen or read for decades where the church had successfully won a battle with the devil. And I believe that was a very significant book because it changed people's minds to thinking. I mean, you've no idea how negative average Christianity was up to that time. And uh, so God has been, I believe, progressively restoring to the church the idea that we have really got the handle on the devil. And a church that moves by faith has power. Has power to thrash the devil and to drive him out of town. Now, to what degree we take over the world before the obvious cataclysmic event of the Lord's return comes is a, is a very debatable thing. I'm not quite sure how far we can go before Jesus comes. But my feeling is, well, let's go as far as we can. Another thing would be, for example, I'll just mention three things quickly. The second thing would be the whole understanding of the body of Christ. It was theological and it was abstract. You know, this universal body of Christ, it was just a theological concept. It had no teeth to it. There was no practicalness about it. 
But if you, and, and I, I did this sort of, not very thoroughly, but the impression I have is that the idea of the church being a functioning body that actually did the works of Jesus on earth was quite new to the church until about the 1950s. And we started to believe that we actually were a functioning body on earth through whom Jesus could continue to do his works. And concerning the kingdom. Now I remember in, again, the uh, late 60s in India, I, I'm still not sure who this person was, but all I remember is that when I was sitting in my little flat in Bombay, this guy appeared, he had an American accent, he had a bag full of books, by a man called Dr. E. Stanley Jones, which was, which was called the uh, unshakable kingdom and the unchanging person. And he said he was an American in accent, I, you'll hear why I say in accent, because he came into our room, he said, God has sent me round the world to meet leaders and to tell them the kingdom is already now. He said, now read this book and start to think kingdom. That's about all he said to me. And then he was gone, and I still wonder whether that wasn't an angel. I really, I really wonder that, because I came back on my uh, furlough at the end of the 60s to find that in this country people were beginning to talk kingdom. It was ever so new then. And so we were robbed of the kingdom. It was all pushed on to, after the Lord comes, we're going to see some success, but until the Lord comes, we can't expect anything. And in the same sense, I believe we've been robbed of a present understanding of the city, of a, a spiritual manifestation of Jerusalem before that great and wonderful day when this city comes down out of heaven adorned as a bride for her husband. Now the Bible doesn't say it doesn't exist before then, but it does say it comes down that day adorned as a bride for her husband. And, and this... Uh, as you will see, is an important thought, and, the, and I'm going to show you scripture which, which does support the present concept of an existing spiritual city. The full glory is yet to come, and the full glory of the kingdom is yet to come. The full glory of the body is yet to come. But the, the idea that there's nothing practical and actual now has been robbing us, I believe, of a, a new positive understanding of the power that is potentially able to work through us and as a result change the very spiritual climate in which we minister. See, I believe that if we occupy the heavenly realm spiritually, then that's when we see things change substantially on earth. I, I believe that's really the essential heart of revival. I believe that's the success which we are presently seeing, for example, in South Korea. If, if you've ever listened to Yonggi Cho, and we've, we've been privileged to, to meet him, Eileen spent a lot of time in, in South Korea and wrote that book, which some of you may have read, God Can Do It Here. But I've heard him say several times, on tape and publicly, that when he preaches in South Korea, he preaches under an open heaven. He says, we have bound the strong man. He doesn't rule anymore. Now that doesn't mean that Christians have all got into the strategic political positions and they've sort of taken over at a natural level on earth, although there is a strong Christian infiltration into various important positions. But what's happened is that they've taken over the heavenlies. With the result that there's a, there's a freedom and a release for people to turn to Jesus Christ, which is 
which is amazing. I mean, you go to that church on a Sunday, and I've been there, and he preached a very ordinary sermon. I mean, I could do better. At least that's what I think. <laughs> but the only thing is that when he gives the invitation, 2,000 people respond. That doesn't happen yet for me. And that happens every Sunday as part of the normal church life. And, and you just feel the whole climate's different. And the reason is because they are a functioning city, spiritually, which I, by the time I finish with you today, you'll understand why I say that. They have a tremendous authority in, because there's a right structuring which allows that authority to be exercised. And that's the burden of my heart today. See, one of the things that has bothered me is with this tremendous charismatic movement which is touching the nations of the world and, and has changed church life in Britain, why does darkness roll in so powerfully? We haven't really stopped it, have we? It gets more and more desperate and more and more you know, outrageous legislation comes in and more and more wicked and, and more blatant manifestations of, of the powers of darkness seem to be manifested in our land and, and where are all these fantastic powerful Christians? Why aren't we actually doing anything? Have you ever thought that question? Actually, you don't think that way, but I think that way. You know, Lord, why aren't we seeing a more clearly manifested victory? I read some recent church statistics, which I didn't bring with me today, but they are a fascinating set of figures just to show how the charismatic renewal has increased across the world. And if you draw a graph of it, it's like a, it's an exponential curve. It just sort of goes shum like that. And in the, in the, uh, I mean, I'm, these are a few figures which I'm just trying to get out of the top of my mind. But in the, say, the 1950s, there was something like, say, uh, 25 million spirit-filled believers worldwide. And by, by the year 1986 end, that figure had increased to 193 million worldwide. It's a phenomenal growth. But now the growth is even greater. You can't do it every 10 years now, you have to do it every year. And the figure that I've last read quoted by two sources, Patrick Johnson of, of World, you know, Operation World, you've probably heard of him. He's with the WEC, you know, researcher. And Peter Wagner in uh, the United States is another one who spends a lot of time in this kind of statistical area. And they both estimate that the present strength of, of born-again, spirit-filled believers worldwide is around about the 330 million mark. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Incredible growth. And I believe that if we just start to hear what the Spirit's saying and start to pray, I think first of all, as you will see, you think, well, how on earth are we going to achieve this practically? And my first response is, well, let's start to pray that it will happen and God will show us a way for it to happen here in Edinburgh. Because I believe that the spiritual city of uh, uh, of Jerusalem, if you like, is established in Edinburgh, it'll change the whole ball game. And we're going to see some mighty power released. And that's why I'm, I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to share these things with you. So if we come to Hebrews chapter 11, I want to just read from verse 8. And the first thing I want to establish is that Abraham saw this. It's not a new doctrine, it's there in Scripture from the very beginning. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived 
as an alien, notice that, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, so his destiny was not that physical piece of land which we call Israel today. His vision was much bigger than that. Even while he was living physically in the promised land, his aspirations were for something much greater, therefore he was living in a tent in the promised land. Because God had put something much bigger in his heart. He wasn't content with a few thousand square miles of physical land called Israel because he'd seen something much bigger. So he lived in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the, of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundation, whose builder and whose architect, whose architect and builder was God. Come down to verse 13, because we won't look at Sarah, although that's also very interesting. All these died in faith. Well, let's go back, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let's go back and read verse 12. There also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at, at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sandwiches by the seashore. So he, he, he had a, a heart for a land which was not the physical promised land because he was living in that physical promised land but looking for something much more which made him to be a pilgrim and he had a sense of being an alien in that promised land. Secondly, he saw a city whose builder and maker was God and in verse 12 he is already embracing a, a multitude as numerous as the stars for as heaven, although he was as good as dead and hadn't even produced one yet. Verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. So, let's just look at that for a moment. He'd come out from Ur of the Chaldeans, travelled down to Canaan, which of course is present-day Israel. He was living in physical, physically in present-day Israel or Canaan, and that wasn't his land because he was living like an alien and a stranger, and he wasn't thinking to go back to where he came from either, because that wasn't what he was looking for either. Because what God had birthed in his heart, as we can see from other scriptures like Romans chapter 4 verse 13, uh, verse 13 for example, was that by the time he'd got to this place, he realised that God's purpose was the whole world. That he saw that he was to inherit all that God had created. Hallelujah. Can you see that? Come to Romans chapter 4, verse 13. You'll see the size of his vision. Because it's talking about those who are of like faith are the children of Abraham. And verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, which would include you and me, that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. And Paul says in the Corinthians, he says, he says, the world's yours. In other words, that's the heart of those who believe like Abraham. All that God's created, everything that he has made has been given to his children to rule over. Do you believe that? And Abraham saw that. He said, well, Canaan's 
just a spot on the map, as it were, God's put the world in my heart. I see that everything must come under the rule and the government of God, and that means that we, as his as his people that our job is to come and be the rulers and that's why he was looking for a city because the city was the means of exercising that government as I shall uh, hope I shall, I'm sure successfully show you during this day verse 16 but as it is they desire a better country that is an heavenly one and I believe there's another truth here. What Abraham saw was that the, ra the way to rule the world was to rule the heavens. It's the prince of the power of the air who has everybody on earth in his control. Is that not true? Ephesians chapter 2. We all, it says, were following our own lusts, following the desires of our own hearts, but actually, although we didn't know it, we were all being manipulated by the prince of the power of the air. In other words, Satan has got control of the earth because he's got control of the men that God appointed to rule the earth. And the way that he rules the men on earth is that he's occupied a realm of heaven and it's the spiritual wickedness in that heavenly place that produces his ability to exercise an oppressive domination of the affairs on earth. Clear the heavenlies and you can possess the earth. Got it? I'm saying it quickly, but I want you to see that. That's why it says in the New Testament, I'm jumping ahead, but when, it, when Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be, has been bound in heaven. See, if we win in the heavenly realm, then we can implement, I don't think I'll have time today to get on to, say, Luke 18 and Luke 11, to talk about spiritual warfare. But if we, if we occupy and possess that country, the, the, the realm where the principalities and powers exercise their rule from down upon the earth, if we occupy that realm, so the whole thing is primarily spiritual, although it does have social, economic and political consequences, we've got to see that the root of the thing is spiritual. And that's why, you know, demonstrations and marches and, and infiltrating into po politics all have their place, but they do not succeed until we've gained the realm of the heavenlies. Got it? And that's why you said, what you bind on earth will be, has been bound in heaven. If you've, if you've got, as it were, there's like a, if I can just digress for a moment, if you can imagine that there's like a heavenly uh, courtroom. There's a legal battle going on, which is which is portrayed for us in Luke 18, when Jesus talks about the importunate wo uh, widow and says, "When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Have we got faith on earth to penetrate and occupy the heavenly realm?" That's what he's asking us. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. And so there's the there's the judge, who of course is God. There's the defendant who is Satan, who's trying to hang on to his illegal kingdom. He's trying to prop up his tottering kingdom. And the prosecution is man. We are, if you like, portrayed by the importunate widow, who's crying out for vengeance over her adversaries. God has to be righteous in all his dealings, including the way he deals with the devil. He cannot be other than perfectly righteous. So the devil has to have the opportunity to present his case. He has the, the, the legal right to resist our claim 
that Jesus Christ is glorified and honoured on earth and it's the end of the devil's ability to manipulate and mess about with that beautiful creation. And of course the judge is on our side, but he can't just give a judgment to us. The devil has to be allowed to argue his case. Now from the human perspective, this is how Jesus portrays God, both in that parable in Luke 18, he portrays God in the same way in the parable in Luke 11 about the, you know, the friend going to a friend. He portrays God as being uncaring, indifferent, not wanting to be bothered by all this stuff. Because often when we start to pray over an issue, it seems that way. And as you start to take up an issue, oh God, you know, let's see a change in, in our spiritual climate here in Edinburgh. And we start to go for it and it does not seem that we get an immediate enthusiastic response from God because we're having to fight a battle. Do you understand that? Now if we do not press the case through to a conclusion, even if we've got a cast iron case, if you went to court and you had an absolute proof that you had the right to your verdict, unless you persevered through to the final judgment, even if you uh, had no doubt about you had overwhelming evidence, if you quit the case halfway through, the righteous judge is forced to give the verdict to the person who doesn't deserve it. That's true, isn't it? And what happens again and again with believers is we start to press a case, but we don't carry it through. And so the righteous judge reluctantly has to allow that round of the battle to be given to the evil one, when he ought not to be having the victory. That's why Jesus cries out for men to have faith. The other thing we have to understand is this, that in this present dispensation, God, because of his righteousness, has to work through man. Now he's almighty, sovereign God. He can do anything. He has all power and all authority. And we all know that. But he is bound by his righteousness. And what you've got to see is this, that God could at any time wipe the devil off the face of the earth, but if he brought the devil to judgment, he would at the same time have to bring man to judgment. Because the devil would demand that he did. Can you see that? All right, if I'm going to hell, I'm going to drag everybody down with me. That's what he would say. Just like these, some of these aid victims who go around trying to infect everybody else because they want to drag as many people down to their own condemnation if they can. And that's the spirit of Satan. So God isn't prepared at this point of time to bring man to judgment because he wants men to be saved which allows the devil room to move and, and to uh, offend God by his foul activity upon the earth. But what God can do is through human agency, he can come and he can, he can drive the devil out of town on a, on a local uh, basis by being free to work through men who call for his righteous judgment in that situation. You know, when I began to see that, I began to understand why God is always crying out for a man to stand in the gap. I began to see why my prayers are important. Because Almighty God needs me as a righteous channel to intervene in the affairs of this world. And if I start crying out for justice, like that importunate widow, start calling upon God 
to vindicate the, his name and vindicate the name of Jesus, he inside said, go on, keep going for it, but as a righteous judge, he has to let the case be heard. And then finally, he gives the verdict. And when he gives the verdict, then he releases the heavenly hosts to become bailiffs of the court of heaven to implement that decision which is now being given legal authority in the heavenly. And whatever we have bound on earth, once we've obtained the court order in the heavenlies, it can now be implemented upon the earth. Do you see that? Whatever's bound on earth, this is what it says in the Greek, it's a strange construction. Will be, has been, it's a sort of future past tense. It will be bound on earth, if you like, because it has been bound in heaven. You, you, you possess the realm of the heavenlies and then you can enforce the rule of God in the realm of the earthly. Hallelujah. Now that's what I believe Abraham saw. He saw the way that the world was going to be taken, the way the multitudes were going to be gathered in, the way the powers and principalities were going to be thrown back, the way that he could occupy the country of the heavenlies, and the whole key to the thing was that he had to build a city whose builder and maker was God. A spiritual city had to rise up that had the power of government and of rule and of exercising military authority in, of course, a spiritual sense. I'm not talking physically or politically at all, although it does indirectly affect these realms. Have you got that? Okay, let's move on and we'll, we'll note in passing that in Genesis uh, chapter 12 and verse 2 that God promised to Abraham many wonderful things but I want you to just note one or two. Verse 2 of Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. He promises that you will be a blessing and he promises at the end of verse 3, in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. You know, that's a tremendous promise, isn't it? You know, that scripture, in my opinion, is, is pretty well being fulfilled in a nation like South Korea where the impact of the gospel has been so strong that it's brought blessing to the whole nation. I think it would be almost true to say that almost every family in South Korea, whether it's Christian or not, is, in, is experiencing the benefit and blessing of the kingdom. It is an economic miracle, for example. Eileen travelled uh, on one occasion back from South Korea, on a, um, back to Paris, and uh, she was, I can always get her to tell this bit herself, but uh, I hope I get it correct when I say it, that she was travelling between a couple of Koreans who were in the textile business. That's right, wasn't it? And they had wives who'd been saved and converted and filled with the Spirit in this powerful move of God. They were still Buddhists. And they were, I would imagine, very rich men, multimillionaires, who were going, coming to Europe to you know, to do big business. And they were saying to her, you know, how their whole country has been changed in, in law and order, in terms of security. I mean, you can walk around Seoul, it's probably one of the safest cities in the world to walk in. 2.2 million of the 8 million people are born again spiritual believers. Every taxi driver that I've, I've got into, he's praying a praise tape in his taxi with a big Bible stuck on the, stuck on the dashboard. It's a tremendously safe city. Now there's been a little bit of student unrest recently, but that's just the devil trying 
desperately to try and make an inroad back. Thank you very much. Thank you. But these two guys said, yes, we recognise how God has blessed our nation and we recognise it's because we've honoured the Lord Jesus Christ and many people are believing in him. They said, our two wives are believers and they brought blessing upon our business. They said, well, why on earth aren't you Christians? They said, well, you see, because the standard of Christianity is so high that we can't live up to that standard of righteousness and be successful in our business. I mean, what a peculiar way to respond. We're too corrupt to be real Christians. So we just let our wives get the blessing and roll it over on us. Now just imagine a society where we've so impacted the heavenlies that we've brought such a, a cleanness into the environment that the result is that all the families get blessed. They're not all converted, but they're all blessed. You got the picture? Now God promised that to Abraham. It's part of his covenant promise. And the Bible says that we inherit all the promises of Abraham, don't we? That's what it says in my Bible. And so I could go on. Okay, let's go to Genesis chapter 4. I'm sorry, Galatians I meant to say. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And I just want to read verse 24 it says there well let's read 21 tell me you who want to be under the law do you not listen to the law for it is written that Abraham had two sons one by the bondwoman one by the free woman but the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son by the free woman through the promise this is allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves she's Hagar now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children present Jerusalem represents all the bondage of religion and of the law and if you go to present Jerusalem you can cut it with a knife it's so thick with the atmosphere of law and religious bondage. Amen? And they're prisoners, absolute prisoners. But then it talks about another Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is, not will be, our mother. So here's Paul recognising that they're already part of a heavenly Jerusalem who is free and who gives birth the children of promise and the fruit of that one is much greater and then he tells us then to cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman he also tells us that the one born according to the flesh will persecute the one born according to the spirit so we're talking about a spiritual Jerusalem that now is come to Hebrews chapter 12 I'm just going to have to speed up and get some of this through a little more quickly it talks at verse 18 about we've not come to Mount Sinai. You come to verse 22. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Andrew Murray, in his wonderful commentary on the book of Hebrews. Ever read that commentary? But he, he describes this passage and he says, I want you to imagine that you're on a long train journey. And if you have ever lived in India, you can get a very real understanding of what he's talking about because you can go on a train journey there that can take five days. 
to travel for a day or so is perfectly normal. And you settle down in the train and you start to try and while away the hours while this train chunters along at about 25 miles an hour, stopping every few hours for a meal stop. Everybody gets out and has a meal and get, they ring the bell about five minutes before the train starts. You get back in again after 45 minutes with a full stomach and off you go again. And you start to get to know everybody and you know, it's almost like a sort of a travelling hotel with not too high a standard of hygiene, but nevertheless it's okay. And you sort of while away this time, and this is the picture he's got here, that you feel, oh, it's a long way before we reach our destination. He says, then suddenly you wake up to hear the name of the station that you wanted to reach being called out. He said, now that's the force of the Greek word here. Now that's why Andrew Murray says, he says, you suddenly hear this cry, you've now come. You thought you weren't going to get there for ages, but suddenly you realize you're there. And it says here, you've now come. Not that you will come, it's not going to happen after Jesus comes, but you have already come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. I want you to understand this, that when we start to, as it were, release the heavenly realm, if I can use that, that term, occupy the heavenly realm, one of the things it does is it releases the angelic hosts to work legally and legitimately on behalf of the church to destroy the principalities and powers of darkness. And as we start to penetrate this thing, we're going to see an increasing involvement of angelic activity on our behalf. If you read the New Testament, if you read the book of Acts, there's a lot of present angelic activity, isn't there? I want to say that, you know, almost prophetically, because, and it's also very biblically true. I once had a vision, oh, years ago, it was when Ern Baxter was preaching, uh, when he came to, to Dale's Bible Week for a couple of years. Do any of you remember that? 1977, I think it was, in 78. And he was preaching at a leaders' conference in High Lee in Hertfordshire. And while he was preaching, I had this vision. And I've never forgotten it. What I saw was this. I saw a great wide open plain, the ideal sort of site for an old-fashioned battle. And across this plain, there was all these, these war horses with very, very heavily armed uh, knights riding upon these horses, but, but they were all black, and they were just roaming freely across this vast um, plain. And right up at one end of this plain, there was a thick, strong stone wall, very thick and very strong, and behind this stone wall were a whole mass of, 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 of horses and, and riders who were all in shining white, very well armed, but they were all sort of almost squeezed up on each other behind this wall. And then a great, while Owens was preaching, he was preaching on the kingdom, I saw a great male fist come down and punch a hole through this wall and the stones went flying everywhere and the moment that hole appeared these horses were going through the hole sort of throwing over each other to get through the hole and they were out on the plain and then started to engage the black horses and began to drive them away and I said Lord what's the wall? it was obvious what the picture means it means that all those heavenly hosts who were longing to take on the, the powers of darkness and, and, and drive them out of town, they were restrained and restricted by this wall. I said, Lord, what's the wall? And the Lord said two things constitute that wall. Disunity among my people and unbelief among my people. And part of that is a total lack of vision. That's part of the unbelief. 
There's no expectancy and no faith among my people. And their disunity has given the field to almost unhindered control of the evil one. And I see again, I see the city as crucial to that uh, situation being reversed. So we've come to a present city which is characterized by many things including myriads of angels. We're going to see a release of the angelic powers they can legally come and start to fight for the saints and fight for the church in a way that we've perhaps not experienced for decades or centuries. That's going to be tremendous, isn't it? I mean, imagine having sort of a two legions of angels attached to this church to implement your prayers or whatever church you represent this morning. That's going to make a difference, isn't it? And a few pipsqueak demons are not going to be very, very effective against such a mighty, mighty onslaught, but it all has to be done righteously. We get there, we're going to come to, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, so this new edition is very much the church, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Amen. Right, let's just move on. So let me just summarize that then and say that Abraham essentially saw three things. He saw a land which was the whole of physical creation and he saw that by occupying the territory of the heavenlies, that was the realm from which government and rule could be exercised upon earth. He saw a multitude as numerous as the stars of heaven for number, which God had promised him were going to be his descendants. And he saw a city which had foundations and whose builder and whose maker was God, and that city was Jerusalem spiritually, which now is and is the city of the new covenant, the place where the believers dwell. There's a final glory to come, but there's a present reality of that city. It already exists in the realm of the heavenlies. And so from that realm of the heavenlies, once these 45 cities are established, that allows us to exercise government, which then has its very, very uh, important uh, impact upon the affairs of this world. He saw the city was the means to possess the land and to rule the land and the city was the means of reaping the multitude. Right, come to Matthew 5 and we'll also see that Jesus saw the city. Matthew 5 verse 13. Matthew 5 verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. I want you to notice in this passage that Jesus only speaks in world terms. He speaks of the earth and the words that he uses is the earth in the sense of the whole earth. 
He speaks of the world in the term cosmos, in the sense of the whole world. Now these are the words that are used here. You're not just to be the salt of your street or for a radius of three miles around where you meet. He doesn't talk in those terms. I want you to see how in the heart of Jesus from the very, very beginning he has only one passion and that's for the world. For the earth. How much of the devil's works does Jesus intend to destroy? That's what it says, isn't it? 1 John 3, 8 For this purpose Christ was revealed that he might rescue 220 sinners out of Edinburgh and the rest go to hell. He was revealed that he might destroy all the works of the evil one. Acts 10, 38 we read that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. And I could quote many more scriptures. So, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how would it be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. Not, as we were taught in Sunday school, Jesus bids us shine with a pure, clear light. You in your small corner, and I in mine. Did you think that one? Let's all be in our little small corners. We can't expect to have much effect, but at least let's shine for Jesus in our little tiny corner. But it's the light of the world, beloved. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lamp standard. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So three things very quickly. First of all, salt. Salt is, I believe, the means by which we permeate society. If you put a... a a spoonful of salt into a stew, it goes right through the whole stew. It, it, everything has the flavour of salt. And if it doesn't give any flavour, there's no point in putting salt in, because that's what it's put in for, isn't it? Just to give the flavour. And so there's a dimension of our living where we are to go into the world and we're to go into every strata of society and we are to bring the salt, the, the flavour of the kingdom into that society. That's why I'm absolutely convinced about Christian teachers infiltrating the education system, getting into the places where they decide on curriculum, getting into politics, getting into the medical profession, just infiltrating everything, getting into business in, and particularly and especially into the media. So they, they're just there colouring and, and infecting everything with the savour of the kingdom. But it's no use being there unless we bring the kingdom. If the salt loses its savour, if we're just quietly, passively, sort of just there without ever it having an influence, what's the point of being there? And we're so much on the defensive. And yet we've got something so good I forget the name of the guy, but there's, there's a, I know uh, this person who runs a business management consultancy and he gets people to pay him £500 a day to come and listen to his principles of business, business management. And they all come flocking in from the world to pay £500 for a one-day consultancy and all he does is to teach them the kingdom. He tells them at the end, this is all in the Bible. 
and they come flocking in because what we've got is much better than what they've got but the trouble is we don't believe it and in the right way I don't mean we do it in a you know a sort of a witless witness way we do it with a with a subtlety because the Jesus said we have to be as wise as serpents as well as harmless as that but we get in there and we infiltrate everything we've got to be aiming to do is to is to if, if you like is to influence people with the ethics of the kingdom even if we can't openly always proclaim the gospel so there's the salt dimension and I'm all for it and we need to be praying and, and watching and looking for every way that we can invade then we have the light dimension and the light of course is the life and here I believe this is where we, we have something set apart and separate from the world to be an unpolluted demonstration of the kingdom. That's why I also believe in Christian schools. They, are not, they don't contradict each other. I don't believe in sending my children to war, but I do believe in sending teachers to war. Okay? But then with a good Christian school where everything's kingdom, we can say, now come and see how education ought to be. And they ought to come to our schools and their mouths should drop open with amazement to see. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. When you get a, like a, a, a learning centre, as we have had, with say 40-something 40 40 teenage children learning together in this environment and you come into this place and there's not even a supervisor there because the kids are all getting on with their work. I mean, that's rather remarkable, isn't it? Because the kingdom's in the kids' hearts. It isn't just a method of education, it's the kingdom being demonstrated. That's why I believe in Christian businesses, I believe in Christian medical practices, where a group of doctors come out from the system and set up a demonstration unit to show them what the kingdom's like. But I also believe in doctors getting into the National Health Service and influencing an assault, both are necessary. The life burns brightly and becomes a, a, like a, a, a light on a lamp centre that just can't be hidden. It's there for everybody to see. And I, I, I just say this in passing really because we also notice that Jesus calls us to be a city set on a hill that can't be hidden. Because you see, the salt is, is, the, is the life of the kingdom um, savouring society, permeating society, the light is standing out against the darkness, opposite to the darkness, and demonstrating in clarity the alternative lifestyle. And that includes our marriages and families and all these other things as well. And the city is the government by which the rule of God is exercised upon earth. And Jesus spoke about all these things. I'm speeding up because I don't want to end up by running out of time. So let me just move on. I've just dropped a few thoughts in your heart there. I want now to speak for a few minutes just before the coffee break about David's kingdom. Now we were told in Galatians 4 that these two cities of uh, Jerusalem and uh, Arabia and all these things, these are allegories and a lot of the Old Testament besides being of great historical importance and besides revealing to us many uh, ways of the way God deals with man another important use of the Old Testament is its allegorical use 
It says in the New Testament that Jesus never taught anything without teaching in parables. It's that, it says that in the book of Isaiah. Now this is dangerous ground because if you start to get into this in a nutty sort of way you can make the Bible say anything. But it's very clear that there's clear allegorical teaching to be drawn out of the Old Testament. And one of the clear allegorical pictures that God so clearly uses because the New Testament refers to it again and again and again so there's no doubt about this at all is that the establishing of David's kingdom was, is a type and a shadow and an allegory of the establishing of the kingdom of God. The throne on which David sat is repeatedly called a, a forerunner of the throne on which Jesus now sits. The person of David quite often represents allegorically the person of Jesus Christ. And you'll find that, and again I could do a study but I haven't time this morning, but you can get a concordance, you can find it out for yourself. It, 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 again and again when they start to preach this, they, they say, well this is the fulfilment. And the prophets are, are full of this prophecy that there's coming someone to sit on David's throne. And once David's kingdom was established, it became the reference point of rightness for the rest of the whole of the history of the children of Israel. You'll find if you go through the kings, if they did it like David, they did it right. And you find again and again, he was a good king because he did it just like his father David. He might have several generations, but he was still called like his father David. You'll find in the restoration under Nehemiah that as they established praise and worship and did many other things, it says they did it like David did and therefore it was right. It had the approval of God upon it. Because that Davidic kingdom has got so many principles which are principles which carry on into the New Testament and into the full manifestation of the New Covenant to show us how God establishes the rule of the city. In other words, you see, David was the man that built the city of Jerusalem. And David was the man who brought in the kingdom. And David was the man who set up a, a government and a leadership which for the first time brought righteousness and, and peace and, and prosperity to God's people. And while he was there, it all ran as a kind of allegorical picture of God's further purpose, which was to be fully realised under Jesus Christ. Therefore, the study of this passage of Scripture is not only interesting historically, it teaches us many principles which are true in the New Covenant. Okay? It says in 1 Corinthians 10.11 that these things were written for our instruction and especially on whom the end of the ages have come. So I want to look at this for a little while. I want us to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5 and see some of these principles and what they teach us. 2 Samuel, chapter 5, we read there that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron and they anointed David king over Israel. And David was 30 years of age when he began to reign. Does that phrase say anything to you? Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. 
Doesn't that speak to you of Christ and the church? Because that's exactly how it's described. It was a covenantal relationship. And they came together, first of all, at Hebron. Now, Hebron, the name Hebron, it means fellowship. It's the sort of Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. And what I see here is that the development of the kingdom had an initial stage, because we're told that David reigned at Hebron for seven and a half years. Is it seven and a half? I think it is, yes. Verse five, seven and a half years, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 33 years. So for these seven and a half years that David was in Hebron, they had, if you like, they had a measure of fellowship. That speaks to me about a group of churches coming together and saying, let's have a bit of fellowship in the town. So we organized one or two celebrations. We perhaps jointly organize the visit of some well-known speaker. We may organize a joint evangelistic campaign. And that's what I see as Hebron. It's a, it's a measure of fellowshipping together. Fighting each other and being competitive. But what we have to see is that while it's several steps in the right direction, it doesn't represent the ultimate purpose of God. Do you hear me? And I want to say this quite strongly, that if we get as far as Hebron, we've done well, but we have not yet got to the place where the cities come. And all the time that David lived at Hebron, he never attempted to, 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 to build the kingdom. He just ruled over the tribe of Benjamin and Judah and waited his time, and because he wasn't released yet for the kingdom. The kingdom cannot come from Hebron. And he couldn't build the city from Hebron. He didn't try and build the city of God in Hebron. He had to wait until he came to Jerusalem. And then after these, se these seven and a half years, the other people who were to be part of the city came to him at Hebron and they also recognized that he'd been appointed by God to be their leader and then they started to move then in a totally different level of relationship and then the city could be built. Now Hebron's good. And it's way better than, than competitively all doing our own thing and even worse, even actually fighting each other, which tragically is the story of a lot of the church of Jesus Christ, isn't it? And that's what I saw was this thick wall. That's the armour on which the strong man relies. He can hide behind the protection of the division amongst the believers. That allows him to hold on to what he doesn't have any right to hold on to. I'm, I'm moving now to Luke 11, to the strong man, you understand that, don't you? But it says that when the stronger one comes and takes away the armour on which he's relied, which is the division and the unbelief of the saints, and they start to get it together and say, hey, come on, let's start to get this vision of the city. Let's start to implement it. Let's ask God to give us a strategy of how we do it. Let's move from Hebron to Jerusalem. I tell you, we're on our way to revival, beloved. Now, you've probably all heard of the, or read of the great revivals in South America, in Brazil and Argentina. They've been going on probably for about 30 years now but particularly intensified in the last 10 years. And in the last 10 years, something over 30 million people have been added to the churches because of a powerful move of God that just goes on and on. And one of the keys is, in a city like Buenos Aires, for example, you've heard of one Carlos Ortiz, probably. You've heard of a guy called Orville Swindle. Heard of these men? 
Now they are a team of ministers committed to one another and probably apart from Seoul, South Korea, that's the nearest thing to a spiritual city on the face of the earth that's existing at this present time. And there's such a rule in the government in the heavenlies in that place that the people are just pouring in. The multitudes are being gathered in because the, the, the spiritual land is being ruled over because of the existence of the spiritual city. So Hebron's good, but it's not far enough. Now, the first thing that David did when they brought him to Jerusalem was that he dealt with the Jebusites. Look at verse 6. Now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and said to David, they said to David, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame shall turn your way, thinking David can't enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, through the water tunnel. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come in here. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David and David built all around from Milo and inward and David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. So obstacle number one was to deal with the Jebusites. Let me just mention that quickly. You see, if you read of the capture of Jerusalem in Judges chapter 1, you, look, you read verse 8 for example and, and you read there just as if the city had been taken. Perhaps we better read it in, in order to, to make sure we... Uh, know that verse. Come to Judges, Judges chapter 1 and verse 8. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. You say, right, that's Jerusalem taken, hallelujah. But then if you come to verse 21 of the same chapter, there's a but. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So all that time there was this little citadel called Zion where the Jebusites were holding out against the conquering people of God. And in the end Benjamin didn't try and shift them, they just came to terms with it and cohabited with them and all the days of Saul's reign although he was out sort of conquering and fighting the Philistines and all that kind of stuff, as far as his own home base was concerned, there was that little bunch of mocking Jebusites saying, Ha! You can't capture us! You can't take us over! You can't come in here! And to David, this whole situation was intolerable. And so he, the first thing he was going to do was he was going to get rid of these Jebusites which had mocked him or, or, or mocked the people of God all these years. Now what I see spiritually is this, that many of us have experienced the, 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 a, a tremendous moving of Jesus Christ upon our lives. You can apply this thing personally, you can apply it corporately as far as a church or fellowship is concerned. And I can say there was a day in July the 3rd, 1958 at 8.15pm when I made Jesus Lord. He took the city, if you like. And he became my Lord, but unfortunately there was an unclean mind that I'd lived in for years that was still the trampling ground of the devil. 
And for seven years I battled with unclean thoughts and with impurity. So most of me said, oh, Jesus is Lord. I'd actually gone and become a missionary and I was seeing people saved and I was preaching and yet part of my being was still a citadel of Zion where the Jebusites were mocking the conquest of Jesus Christ. Do you see what I mean? And they were saying, oh, you can't come in here, you can't come in here. And I tell you, just like David, this sort of thing is hated by Jesus. He died and rose again that he might be Lord. And and the idea that we can come into the kingdom of God still blind and lame from our former life and sort of limp through our Christianity, still a prisoner to the fact that our grandmother was a spiritist or I was abused as a child or that I messed my life up before I was converted, that sort of idea is intolerable to God. The salvation of Jesus Christ is a total, full salvation. Do you understand me? I mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to make the point. Seven years after I was converted, while I was pastoring the one and only Baptist church in Bombay, we were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the first thing the Spirit said to me was, look at the Scriptures. The Scriptures say that you have a new mind. Which they do, don't they? And I got on my knees with a Canadian brother that I had very close fellowship with and I said, John, I shared my problem, I said, John, I'm going to ask God this morning for a new mind. Now, I'm not aware that demons came out of me. They possibly did because I do believe a lot of this pollution is demonic strongholds within our lives. But all I know is that that morning something broke in my life and something no longer had any hold over me and my mind was freed from this bondage which I'd had as a Christian for seven years and for decades before I was converted. And that Jebusite was killed. Now that just illustrates what I mean. It can be a personal thing. And if we're going to start talking about the city of God and, 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 and taking over the demonic powers, I tell you, we've got to make sure that there aren't Jebusites in the city because that city's never going to be secure. I mean, take some of the recent you know, downfalls of, of men, uh, of God, like say Jimmy Swaggart. I mean, that was always in the man. He should have got the thing dealt with. And the tragedy is that around the churches and around the situations of of, of the charismatic movement, there are people who are vulnerable because they haven't got the Jebusites dealt with. And if we start to really go up against principalities and powers, I tell you, those sort of people are going to be knocked off by the devil. And there could be some of you even here this morning. It's just like an army, if you can imagine the picture. Imagine that there's an army that's very well equipped and got, you know, fantastically trained and they've got the latest weapons and on the sort of parade they look very impressive. And you think, God, that army could do anything. But just imagine that in each soldier, in each tank, in each plane and in each ship there was an explosive charge with a radio detonator and the enemy had control of the button. And any, he says, oh, it looks very impressive, but any time I want, I can blow it up. I've got my Jebusite in each and every one of them. And, it, and at the most strategic moment, when it's most embarrassing and does the most damage to the kingdom of God, I'll just press the button and blow the thing up and great will be the fall of it. 
So if we're seriously and effectively going to penetrate the spiritual realm and bring down the principalities and powers, they're going to be going through us like a fine-tooth comb looking for any weaknesses so they can knock us down. That's true of us personally and it's true of us corporately. And David knew that he couldn't think about building a fortified city with a bunch of Jebusites right in the middle of the thing. And yet Saul lived that way all the 40 years of his reign. So we've got to ask ourselves, has God dealt with the Jebusites in my life? And have we dealt with the Jebusites in our fellowship? Because often when you come into the things of God, you can find that you've got people wrongly placed. You've got someone, uh, this is only an illustration, it's not directed at anything or anybody, you've got someone who's an expert in finance, maybe he's the local bank manager, so he gets hold of the finances, but the trouble is, he's a great mountain of flesh. And he can stop the whole work of God. Or you can have a very gifted musician who's, who's so clever, and yet it, the spirit's wrong. And you find that when you're trying to lead the meeting, he's dominating you from the piano. And you think, and you've got this a battle on between you and him about who's got charge of this meeting. You know what I mean? Those are the sort of things which you can sense when you come to church. You think, you know, there's a Jebusite around here. This has got to be dealt with, or we're not going anywhere as a church until we deal with this thing. David said, you can reach the Jebusites by the water tunnel. What I see here because is a picture of the power, because it talks in Scripture about the bride being washed with the water of the Word. It talks in Titus about the washing of regeneration. Jesus came to his disciples with a bowl of water and said to them, please let me wash your feet. I see all these as pictures of the desire of the living Christ to take the Word of God and apply it like a mighty... Uh, wash, you know, uh, uh, a mighty powerful washing agent to clean those remaining cracks of dirt that are still in the feet as, uh, of us as we walk our daily lives. See the picture I'm giving you? You reach it by the water of the Word, in other words. And it was the Word of God applied by the Spirit that set me free from my unclean mind. Jesus reached that Jebusite through the water tunnel by the washing of the water of the word. And I was free. And I've been very careful to watch over my mind and keep it clear, but I tell you, I'm not a prisoner to these things now. Hallelujah. And I can honestly say that I'm not aware of a bondage in my life. If there is, then I want God to show it to me and I want that Jebusite to be dealt with because I don't want anybody saying, ha, Jesus is Lord, except that he can't come in here. There's a part of your life that he can't get at because there's a mocking Jebusite resisting his total lordship over your life and his total lordship over your fellowship. That's the first thing that David did. Well, it's just coming up to 11.30 and I think this is a good place to stop if you're happy about that. Um, Brian, and then we'll move on to the next bit. Second Samuel, um, and what I want to do, and I have to do it fairly quickly, is I want to show you that there were five things which David did when he came to Jerusalem, and all of them 
have significant New Testament equivalents. And that's referred to, of course, in Acts chapter 15. You remember how in Acts chapter 15, perhaps we will just, in fact, go there for a few moments. Acts chapter 15, and you will recall that at the Council of Jerusalem, when they were facing this new phenomenon of thousands of Gentiles coming into the church and uh, who had come to a vital experience of Christ but were not uh, circumcised according to the law, they weren't trained in the way of the law and there was a big battle going on about whether they should keep the law of Moses. And uh, the Pharisees had their say and various people had their say and then Peter described what uh, he had seen God do amongst the Gentiles and then Paul also speaks and then the apostles and the elders consider the matter and then James has this sort of revelation from the Holy Spirit and he says um, uh, verse 15 and with this the words of the prophets agree just as it is written after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it and then in verse 17 we get the purpose of this in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord of hosts who makes these things known from of old and so there's this reference back of course to the prophet Amos chapter 9 and verse 11 where we're being told here that what was happening was the restoration of David's tabernacle and there are certain principles about that so to understand what that means, we've got to go back to what, what happened when David raised up the tabernacle for the first time. Now I could literally preach for three hours on that phrase alone of what happened and what it signified. In fact, I have got some tapes on it which you may, I'm not trying to sell them, but if you want to know more about that, um, we could arrange for you to get some copies of it. Obviously I can't do all that during this day. But it, essentially there was the, there was the, there was the, the instead of the, the Ark of the Covenant had been uh, for 60 years altogether, approximately, it was 20 years before Saul came to the throne that the Ark of the Covenant rested in the house of a man called Abinadab and then all the reign of Saul, it remained in that house. Now the Ark symbolizes the glory in the presence of God. It's called the, the, the Ark of the God of all the earth. It also, of course, represents that uh, commitment of God to covenant. Our God's a covenant keeping God. Do you believe that? And so for those 60 odd years the, the people of Israel lost the ark and, and the reason was because they had tried to use the ark superstitiously to try and get victory when they were fighting their enemies. What they should have done was to repent of their sin. The reason they were in trouble was because they were, they were unclean and impure and yet still trying to fight as the army of God. Now that to me says a lot about the church. And it went away for 60 years and then they, uh, the, they, they, they I'm sorry, let me, just, let me backtrack a bit and say that in the days of Eli the priest they tried to take the ark into battle to win the victory. Hophni and, and Phinehas were both killed, remember? Uh, Eli fell backwards and broke his neck and then, uh, which one was it? 
Then he asked his wife, I think it was, I forget which one it was now, gave birth prematurely and died in childbirth and the baby uh, was called Ichabod, which is the glory of the Lord's departed. You all know that story, I'm sure. And then they lost the, the ark. It was too hot for the Philistines to handle, so uh, after a little while they sent it back on an ox cart, bringing it back, and it came into the land of the people of Beth Shemesh. You read about this in... Um, First uh, Samuel, uh, verse se chapter 7 it is actually. You can read it from verse 4 through to 7. But, but the point I want to make is this. Perhaps we could just look at that. First Samuel for a moment. And you, you read in verse 19 of... I'm sorry, it's chapter 6. I beg your pardon. First Samuel chapter 6, verse 19. And when, they, when the ark came back into the, into the fields of the Beshemesh, the Beshemanites is the, perhaps the best way of putting it. And they presumptuously looked into the ark and 50,000 of them, plus a few, plus 70, uh, were struck down by the Lord. Now, the picture I see, see here is this. That w you see, what I believe is that, that this is so speaks to me of where the church is today, that, that we have not lived in the fiery presence of God for so long that we don't know what it's like to live in the holy presence of God. And we are longing for revival, we're longing for God to come and be manifested amongst his people, but I, what I fear is we've got to be careful that we don't react, react like Beshem, the Bethshemanites when he comes. And uh, they, had, they, they, I mean, they, they, they knew the law, you can't just open the ark and look inside and say, no, let's see what's inside. I mean, can you see the presumptuous curiosity of the whole thing? And they were just struck dead like that. Because, I mean, and, and this is the amazing thing, that at the end here, they, they say, um, and the men of Bethshemesh said, who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? They got a shock. They discovered God really is holy and you can't live before a holy God if you're mucky. And they had one of two alternatives. They either had to get right so that they were compatible with the Holy God or they had to get rid of God. And you know, the picture I see, because it says they were out in the harvest fields, they were reaping and having, and it was, it was hard work. And when they saw the ark coming to them across the fields, they thought, oh, wonderful. And it seems to me like we're crying out for God to help us in our evangelism. But our evangelism is so mucky with, with flesh and compromise and, and impurity that you know, if a holy God really came to work with half of our evangelistic activity, we would have the same reaction as these people did. And, and God had to strike them because of their unholiness. You know, we're crying out for revival. Oh, God, send revival. Let the Spirit come. But I tell you, when the Spirit comes, it's quite terrifying. I remember when God came to our church in Bombay in the year 1965. And I discovered two frightening things, that God isn't a Baptist. <laughs> well, it was frightening if you're absolutely steeped in Baptist tradition. And he isn't British. And I wanted God to come and bless us in a respectable British... I mean, it was in, in India, but of course, you know, we all know the British way is best. So we wanted him to come in a nice, respectable British way and bless us in a, a nice Baptist way. And God refused to join the Baptist church and stick to the rules. He came as God. 
And he started to shake everything and upset everything, you know, and, and, and it was quite terrifying. And the amazing thing is that these guys, they, they, they see the alternative. We've either got to come in line with God, or God's got to go away from us because we're incompatible. And they make the conscious choice. We're not going to change our ways, and therefore God will have to go from us. And they say, who can live with this holy God? Where, where shall we send him? Amen? And a lot of people crying for revival and longing for God to bless their activity are going to get an awful shock if he comes. And it's amazing how many people who want God to help them in the way that they're doing things, when God comes in his way to do what he wants, they get offended by him. And so they send the, the Ark of the Covenant away to the house of a man called Abinadab. And they carry on with their own unholy activity in the harvest field without God. And he, the ark which, which symbolises the presence of God and the, and the glory of God and the, you know, the, the covenant, I mean, I mean I could, again, we could say a lot about the ark. It's, it's, it's got so much rich uh, allegory in it. Now the name of the man that the ark was lodged with, his name is Abinadab, and Abinadab means the one who was willing. Isn't that interesting? So God found a man who was willing, but the people generally at that time were not willing. And so he, the ark stayed in the house of Abinadab, and Abinadab didn't drop dead. In fact, it says God blessed the house of Abinadab. And if you think of the recent history of the church, that, I believe, is exactly where we are. We've been so mucky in the way that we conduct ourselves that God cannot generally live with his people. If he did, it would be death and destruction, rather life and blessing. Because we don't seriously want to change our ways. But God does find the odd person who's willing. And I'll give you some recent examples. I think a man, for example, I'm talking about this century now when I say recent history, a man like A.W. Tozer was a man who was willing. He was an Abinadab who walked with God and knew God and wrote about God in a way that the evangelical church generally knew nothing about. Have you ever read his writings? You know what I'm talking about. He was a man who was willing and who had a, had a relationship with God that people generally did not know. I think another man would be uh, Watchman Nee, who saw the church and understood much of what we're teaching today as, as new revelation, but he was teaching this in the 1930s. And yet, we in our sophisticated Western society, we said we don't need all that stuff, we can manage perfectly well with our old traditions. But beloved, what we brought is death, not life. And we've allowed the devil to make serious inroads into our society because we will not change our ways to become the powerful cities that can overwhelm the darkness rather than be overwhelmed by it. And these are serious issues. While I was a missionary in India, one of the things that saddened our hearts so, so much was during the, the late 60s and the 70s was the flood of young people coming from Europe to find an answer to life in mystic Eastern religions. There were hordes of them coming over. 
going up into Kathmandu and into Nepal, coming down into Goa, and, 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 and coming in there thousands to listen to, to demon-possessed Maharishis who were teaching them philosophical nonsense, was that they were being heavily possessed by demons. And we talked to quite a few of these young people and were trying to reach them. And every single young person that I spoke to, they said something like this to me, we tried the church, but we found it boring and irrelevant. Now that's a terrible indictment, isn't it? Although we manage all right with our ways, we can manage without God, but we can't. And we have to change our ways. And so the second thing that David did, as a first priority, was to bring back the ark. He said, he said, let's bring back the ark that we haven't sought God all the days of Saul. Saul is a, is a head and shoulders man. He relies on intellect and natural ability, which is what the church has been guilty of for decades. Go to seminary and do a BD and learn, you know, theolo theological and theoretical concepts. Fill your mind with understanding don't worry about being a man of the spirit. That's what essentially is being taught. Now I'm not against biblical education. I soak myself in the scriptures continuously. I've read many, many theological books and I, I want to understand all I can. But essentially I have to be a man who walks with God. There's no substitute for that. And we've had the, the, the killing effect of Saul's uh, reign in the church for decades, beloved. The head and shoulders ministry. As long as your brains can grasp the, the principles and so long as you've got the natural ability to run the church rather like a Marks and Spencer's executive, you've got success in front of you. With the result, we've lost the glory. We've lost the manifest presence of God and the tragedy is that most people prefer to carry on that way because it means too much botheration to change and come into line with God. And so we've lived for, for probably the majority of this century with the ark removed away and with the odd Abinadab here and there having a relationship with God but the church at large has managed perfectly well without the presence of God. And we're not prepared to change that much so that he can come and, and manifest himself amongst his people. And we all know that when David sought to bring back the ark and uh, he got it as far as the threshing floor of Arona, then they were doing it all wrong. I haven't time to teach all this this morning but it's on these tapes that I mentioned about David's tabernacle. They tried to bring back the ark in the wrong way. They thought they could bring... God back on their terms and they couldn't and it ended up in disaster and when God started to shake the ark on the cart which it ought never to have been on because it says in scripture so plainly if you try and carry the ark other than on the poles on the shoulders of the, of the Levites then God says you're, you're going to die for it but they said oh well we don't take that seriously we will do it our way we don't have to do it that particular way. We'll do it the way that we you know seems good to us. After all, we know we're in a new modern society now. We don't have to do it that way. And it started to shake on the threshing for Arona and, and uh, Azza, the, the son of Abinadab, who ought to have known better because he'd lived in the household where God was present for, for all those 60 years. It wasn't as if he was unfamiliar with these things. 
But somehow the spirit that was in his father had not been imparted to Uzzah and he presumptuously reached out to put his hands upon the, upon the ark and he dropped dead on the spot. And David was angry and was confused and was fearful and he went away and for three months the ark was taken into the house of a man called Obed-Edom. And again, God blessed the household of Obed-Edom. But David obviously went away and, and, and the way he was confused and he was angry and I know what he felt like because I've tried to bring back the glory of God I've tried to, you know, to see the power of God loose in my region and I did it in a, in a wrong way I can see now why I went wrong and what went wrong but I was utterly sincere in my desire for the glory of God to come but you have to do it God's way beloved there's no other way to do it. And so David came back and said, we didn't seek God after the proper order. That was what was wrong. And God's got an order. He's got a way of doing things and he's not going to change. I remember hearing a tape of Bob Mumford years ago when in this tape he recalls how God spoke to him and said, Mumford, you and I are incompatible. And I don't change. <laughs> Well, are you incompatible with God? And if you are, are you prepared to change? Is your church structure incompatible with God? And if it is, are you prepared to change? It's a good question. It's a very important question. Makes all the difference between having the manifest presence of God and the power let loose in your situation or actually doing exactly what the men of Bethlehem did, you send God away to those who are willing. And they have the blessing, and you are just simply a spectator to it. But David, although he got uh, confused and hurt and angry, because, you see, for 60 years they'd never lived with a holy God. No one knew how to relate to a holy God. They didn't know anymore that God meant what he said in his word. They thought that you could adjust it according to your tradition and according to present modern day methods but you can't you have to do it according to the word of God and he came back and said we didn't seek God after the proper order we've got to do it right let's do it exactly the way the book says and they did and this time they were successfully able to bring back the Ark of the Covenant and establish it in Mount Zion and this is the thrilling thing right where those Jebusites had been mocking the people of God all those years now the ark of the glory of God was now sitting in David's tabernacle and you know that's true the places in your life where you were most if you like a disgrace to the name of Jesus when you let God deal with it those same areas become the most glorifying to Jesus and this tent of David, if you think about it, and I could talk about this for hours, this tent of David was absolutely illegal. It was just a simple tent with no compartments, and in, the, in this simple tent was the Ark of the Covenant. There were no sacrifices for sin at David's tabernacle. There were only burnt offerings and peace offerings. And what happened was that David and his glory boys used to march up to Mount Zion, pull back the flap, and come into the presence of God, and, and quite illegally live there in the presence of God without dropping dead. You see, what I see so clearly in Scripture is that David lived in the New Covenant 
thousands of years before, well about a thousand years anyway, before it was legally possible to do so. Because he, he was a man of violence who not only created a physical kingdom, that's why it's so relevant to us, he actually entered into the spiritual kingdom by faith, a thousand years before in time it was officially possible. Abraham did the same thing two thousand years before. These were men of the new covenant. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everything about David almost is new covenant and, and he violates all the rules and regulations and gets away with it. I mean he shouldn't have worn a linen ephod. I mean he had no right, he wasn't, he wasn't, wasn't a Levitical priest but he wears a linen ephod and he was a king and his priest unto his God. Now that's a new, a new covenant privilege, you can't do that under the old covenant. But he did it. And he took the showbread off, off, off the, off the uh, table which it wasn't lawful for him to do. And you get all these illustrations which we could all spend time on but, but I just want you to get this feel that that's why what he was doing and what he was seeing is so relevant to us because he was actually in spirit a man of the new covenant. And what he set up on Zion's hill was, was, was more in line with the new covenant than with the old covenant. It was the new covenant before its time. It was a prophetic sign that God set up physically a thousand years before he was going to set it up spiritually. And one of the first things the church was going to do was to raise up again the tabernacle of David. But this time it was going to be a spiritual tabernacle. But many of the principles of it were going to apply now in that spiritual country that we were talking about. David ruled over a physical country but it was a type and allegory of how the kingdom of God was going to exercise government in that spiritual country. Okay? No more time to spend on it now, although it, it's a fascinating area. We could spend a long time on it. So he established, he brought back the ark and he had to... All the Psalms of David, all the Psalms of Asaph, they were all written there. And for 30 years the tabernacle of David stood. And incidentally, at the same time, the tabernacle of Moses was also standing about seven miles away at a place called Gibeah. And people in that generation could, could choose. They could choose to go to, to, Mount, uh, go to Mount Gibeah and go to Moses' tabernacle and go through all the rich traditions of the past. They, they knew exactly when they were going to start and finish. They could always catch the five past twelve bus home without fail because it ran exactly to routine. The only thing wrong was that there was no, that God wasn't there. There was all these rich traditions and all the rich, you know, uh, psalmody and smells and bells of the, of the tradition of Moses. And they'd moved it from Shiloh, which was about 35 miles away, as far as Gibeah, which was seven miles away, but they weren't going to get too near to David's tabernacle. In other words, this is the picture, well what we'll do is we'll get a few guitars into our meeting and we'll sing one or two of their songs and we'll get a few bits but we're not going to get that near because we don't want to get contaminated with what they're doing up in that tabernacle of David because they've really gone over the top now. And so people could choose. So, and and, and the, the wife of David, Michael, she was a Moses tabernacle lady. And she went there on a Saturday and David and his glory boys went to Mount Zion. In the tabernacle of Moses you had all the tradition, in the tabernacle of David all you had was God. There was nothing else there but God. And you could choose. 
is that for one generation, God provided graciously for those who couldn't make the change. But we must be very clear that the power and thrust of the kingdom, it didn't come at all from Moses' tabernacle, it came from David's tabernacle. That's where the power was, that's where the glory was, that's where the presence was, that's where the praise and worship came, that's where the government was. The whole kingdom of David started in David's tabernacle and that's why it was so important to clear out the Jebusites and that's why the building up of this tabernacle was so important. That's why when James began to see the Gentiles coming in without all the trappings of, of their traditions and religion, he said, oh, God's raising up again the tabernacle of David. He's rebuilding its walls, he's restoring its ruins, and the purpose is that there's going to be a mighty evangelistic thrust coming out of David's tabernacle that's going to reach the multitudes of the earth. That's what Abraham saw. Once we get the city built, then we can start to bring in the multitudes as numerous as the stars for number. Jesus saw the same thing. Can you see what I'm saying? So the heart of the city is the tabernacle of David. The heart of the whole thing is, a, is a, an uninhibited access to the presence of God and, and the, the freedom to worship and to praise him and, and the primary requirement of leaders is that they corporately spend time together in the presence of God. That's where they get their revelation from, that's where they get their direction from, that's where the government comes from. David never built a parliament building. He never built a committee chamber. He never had leaders sitting down and discussing what they were going to do about the kingdom. All they did was to go into the presence of God and they heard from God directly about what they were supposed to do. There was no parliament house, no council chamber. There was no uh, uh, synod or organisation that, that discussed how they were going to run the kingdom at all in, in, in the city of David or in the kingdom of David. Now that correlates exactly to, to the New Testament where these apostles who were the foundation of the spiritual city of Jerusalem, the way they got God's revelation was that they also spent their time in the presence of God. I mean I'm jumping ahead but I want you to see how the allegory fits so perfectly. If you read Acts 6, chap uh, chapter 6 verse 4 for example, I never understood what that verse meant until quite recently. When on that occasion they were, they were being distracted from waiting at table because you see in the heart of every apostolic ministry there's the desire to be a servant. It's the highest calling. To deacon in the church is the highest calling. It's what Jesus most loved to do. But he wasn't called to that ministry. He wasn't allowed the privilege of only being a, a functioning practically as a servant. He had to, had to exercise the role that God had given to him. Hopefully you might say some more about that this afternoon, I'm not sure. But you see, what happened was that Peter began to see that in their serving meals to all these needy widows, they were being distracted from their primary calling, which was what? It was to, he said, we must give ourselves, verse 4, to prayer and to ministry of the word. In other words, the first calling upon the apostles was that they were to give themselves to prayer, to coming into the presence of God and to ministering the word in order that the government might be established. But what I never saw till recently was that they did this corporately. They didn't go to their individual studies and seek God, they came together in one place and they corporately heard what God wanted them to do. And that was the security of the thing. 
And I, I, I saw uh, that, that that's exactly what David and his leaders did. If you come with me to uh, Isaiah, uh, I mean, I, I could go on for ages about this, but come with me to Isaiah 15. For example, Isaiah 15 and verse 5. I'm sorry, Isaiah 16, I beg your pardon. Isaiah 16 and verse 5. A throne will even be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. So we see there that the throne is established in David's tabernacle. And he sits on a judge in that tabernacle to exercise government and to be prompt in righteousness. And as we know, once uh, in Isaiah he begins to speak about a child being given, and a, a born and a son being given, we're told immediately that the purpose is that the government's going to be upon his shoulders. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Come back there. And we're told his name is going to be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. We're told there's going to be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and it's going to be on the throne of David and over his kingdom that he's going to establish it. So the whole government structure of the kingdom is, is founded on the pattern and type of David's kingdom. And that's how the government's going to increase until it fills the earth. And it starts with a tabernacle where the glory of God is manifested and where people go just to seek God and to hear from God and that's where the instructions for the kingdom were given to them and that's how they became so wise and so powerfully effective in the establishing of the city and of the kingdom. And they did it in plurality, that was the security. And therefore they came in, in perfect corporeity, knowing what the will of God was. And if, would to God he'd give us uh, schools of apostles like that. Amen? So the tabernacle was the centre of praise. It also became the centre of government. And I will just mention in passing that although David was a clear leader, it was a consultative style of leadership. It wasn't presidential rule. It wasn't dictatorship. 1 Chronicles 13, verse 1, we read there, <coughs> David, it says, consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and indeed with every leader. So it was, it was consultative. I haven't time to develop this either this morning, but if I was to go back to Acts 15, I could show you that James functioned in exactly the same way. Now, James was the head of the city. That is the spiritual city of Jerusalem, because when the church was born, it was born as a spiritual city. And he happened to be located in physical Jerusalem. So spiritual Jerusalem came to birth on the day of Pentecost. You have the twelve apostles as the foundation of the city. They were the government. And of those twelve apostles, others were added. We don't know when, we don't know how, the Bible doesn't tell us. All we know is that James, the brother of Jesus, 
came to apostleship, because the Bible tells us that, and he emerged as the head of the church in Jerusalem. That's very clear, isn't it? You, look, you think how many times in Scripture that James is recognized as the head. I, again, I, I, I could prove it to you, but uh, you can get your concordances out and find this out for yourself if, it, if it's news to you. It's there quite clearly in Scripture. Again and again, there's reference made to James as the, as the leader amongst that sort of bunch of apostles. He had the responsibility for the government of that mighty city church at Jerusalem. And so James finally comes to what's called the judgment. Having listened to Peter, having listened to all that people have to say, having listened to Paul, having sought God the Holy Spirit, having had revelation from Scripture, he then says, this is my judgment. That's what he says, I think it's in verse 19 of Acts 15. Let me just make sure I've got the right verse. Yes, verse 19. This is my judgment. Now he's not saying, this is my dictatorial order. What's happened is this, you see. He's sitting there as the sort of um, leader of this group of men and the wisdom of God is coming out of the mouths of these different men. But he's been given this special gifting from God to recognize the wisdom when it comes. That's from God. Oh, that's a word from God. Well, what brother said there, that's part of the wisdom of God. And he will start to assemble it for everybody else to see that that's what God is saying. But they've all contributed to what God is saying. Do you understand me? They've all had revelation, and when you put the bits of revelation together, it makes a clear pattern, and everybody can see that that's what God's saying. Now, James's job is to assemble the bits for everybody to see what the whole is. Do you understand me? And then he says, look, brothers, this is what God is saying. What, what Jack said was this, Jim said that, John said that, Frieda made this contribution. You put it all together, and that's the clear pattern of God. This is my judgment. This is how I see what God's saying through us corporately. And of course, they all agreed with him, because they'd all contributed to it. You see that? He didn't say, well, I've just come out of my study this morning, and I've just been having a time with God, and God has said this, so we're all going to do it. And he said, like a dictatorial order. It wasn't like that. And because they all contributed to the decision and were involved with him in the revelation, it says in scripture, it was good to the apostles and it was good to the elders because they were part of that corporate decision, although he had to bring the judgment. He had the executive authority to bring the judgment. Do you understand roughly how it works? That's what, now David was the same. It says he consulted with all his leaders. He consulted with the captains of thousands. It wasn't democracy. He retained the executive headship, but they all were involved with him in the decision-making procedure. No one voted, but they all contributed by revelation to the decision which he brought to focus by the special gifting that God had given him. And he said, if it seems good to you, and if it's from the Lord, let's bring back the ark. That was the decision that he was talking about. With the result, they were all absolutely with him in vision because they'd contributed to the vision. But there's a clear head without dictatorship. And that's the balance of authority in the kingdom. Can you see it? It's not democracy. It's not autocracy. It isn't committee management like some elderships where we all sort of, we don't let all the people vote, but we six or seven, we get together and have a sort of vote in between us. It's none of these things. 
And that's a, a beautiful, that's how the, the kingdom's governed. Very, very, very briefly. I hope that's not been too brief. I hope it's made sense to you. Alright, the next thing is, number four, is that David built a fortified city. 2 Samuel chapter 5, 7 to 10, we read there how David built the city and established it as a fortified city from Milo around. He realized that if he was going to rule the land, he'd got to make the city strong. And we're going to spend a lot more time on this later on. It's 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 7 through to 10. Perhaps we've got to just read it. Verse 9, really. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David and he built all around from the millow and inward and David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. Now, I just want to spend a few minutes now just reminding you of how kings ruled over lands in the days of David. What a king would do would he would, he would establish fortified cities and he would put garrisons in those fortified cities. And the land was made secure and ruled over by those strong cities. So David established Jerusalem as a strong city and he started to build other fortified cities. And once he established his network of cities, he was able to exercise rule over the land. Now there were hundreds of villages in between the cities, but these villages had no power of government. They had no power of rulership. It wasn't until the cities came up that there was any rulership possible. And also we read that when David attacked the Philistines and conquered them, the first thing he did was to put garrisons in the cities and built the cities as fortified cities so that he could rule over the Philistines as well. In other words, whoever had the cities had the rule. While the Philistines had their strong cities, David couldn't effectively rule. While David had his fortified cities, the Philistines could no longer plunder the land. Very important principle here. Now, if he filled the land with villages, if he'd built 10,000 new villages, that wouldn't have made the land secure. Because villages have no power to resist an invader, and villages have no power to exercise government. Got it? And what we've been doing is, spiritually, is we've been planting lots and lots and lots of villages, but we're not building any cities. That's what I saw. I thought, bingo, now I understand what's wrong. You see, the enemy can roll across our land, and villages, small churches of two or three hundred people, without the structure and power of a city, we have no power to resist the devil. We can go against the prince of Edinburgh, as a village, we can't do anything about it. But as a city, we can run him out of town, beloved. We can change the rulership in the heavenlies, which will change the whole climate of our function upon earth. We'll start to evangelize and preach and minister on an open heaven, and we can change our society, because we've cleared the heavenlies. We've exercised the rule of God in the heavenlies. So the establishing of the city was all important. There was no kingdom until there were cities. And multiplying villages didn't change the power to rule. 
It didn't change the power to resist the invading enemy. And because we've concentrated on building lots and lots of small churches, lots and lots of small villages, we've not been able to stop the rolling in of ever-increasing darkness across the land. We've not been able to hold back Islam or occultism and witchcraft and humanism and, and all the other things which are, which are demonically uh, polluting our land because villagers can't do it. But cities can. And that's why I'm so convinced that if we start to build these cities, that's the way we're going to change the spiritual climate under which we work and function. Now there's a place for villages, but they have to be placed in between the cities and they have to receive their protection and covering from the cities. So if we concentrate on the cities, then we can give the covering for the villages also to be secure. I'm not saying every, every local church has got to become a city, but certain groupings of local churches have got to come together to be the city, and they will provide the protection for the rest of the land. Okay? Villages cannot do what strong cities can do. They cannot exercise rule and government, they cannot withstand the, the invader. Villages and small towns lived in the shadow and protection of the cities, and they paid tribute to them. They were supplied and they were enriched by the cities. And they were subject to their government and they were satellite to them. So even the villages, which were not part of the city, didn't have autonomous, independent existence. They had a relationship with the city. Just to, I'm just going to show you what I think that means in New Testament terms later. I just want to establish the pattern. And so as David built these cities, they became the whole stronghold for his kingdom. Okay, I'm going to move on now. Have you got the picture? I want to move on now to a whole chunk of scripture which I call restoration. Many people call restoration scriptures. What we're talking about are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. They're the three historic books which cover the period which we call Restoration. They're the history books. Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther. And the three, or the main prophetic books are Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. They're the three prophetic books. All these books were written at the time of Restoration. Now, the prophetic books were written just before and leading up to the time of restoration. So from Isaiah right through to the end of the Old Testament you're covering a period of not more than about 150 years. I don't know whether you realize that, but that, that whole great chunk of scripture is devoted to this period of 150 years. And what happened was the people of God who were called by God to be an invincible army who were going to conquer the promised land and set up a government structure which was going to be the blessing of the world because that was the commission that God gave to his people. Isn't that not true? You read right through from Exodus 19. That was God's purpose for his people. First of all, they got stuck for 40 years in the wilderness. When they finally got into the promised land, they only went so far and they never really did the job properly. They half cleared out the various um, uh, other peoples, they compromised, they messed up, and God warned them again and again and again and again, and finally he started to chasten them with the peoples round right about them, 
the, the nation of, of the ten tribes of Israel, that first of all went into captivity, and Judah was warned, if you don't repent, you're going to go into captivity. And Isaiah uh, was prophesying just before these events took place, Jeremiah was prophesying while these events took place. Daniel was a young boy of about, say, 13 to 15 years of age who was carried away in the first wave of captivity. God even did the captivity in three stages under Nebuchadnezzar. The first phase was just to take away a few of the nobles and to hold them as hostages and also to, to train them in the ways of Babylon. The second stage was to take away a lot of the uh, gifted skilled artisans and craftsmen, Ezekiel was carried away in that captivity and he became the prophet to the captives in Babylon. The final stage was when Jeremiah was in the city of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came and finally destroyed the whole thing. He had had enough. And that final destruction took place in the year, well, round about, if I remember rightly, round about 5 80 BC, 589 BC if I remember correctly, something like that anyway. It started in 608, ran through to about 589 BC. Over that period they went into three-stage captivity. And what happened was they ended up now as captives of Babylon, living in their little, um, what they did was in the different towns and places where they'd been taken away in captivity, they built for themselves synagogues. And these synagogues, the ruins are still to be found around the, 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 the cities, the um, the countries and cities of the Mediterranean, and these little buildings were designed to hold a hundred or at the most two hundred people. And they used to meet every Saturday in these little synagogues, they would read the scriptures and they would dream about being God's people who were God's purpose to fill the earth with his glory. But the whole thing seemed so utterly unreal. The songs of Zion were all about taking the nations, being the light of God, being the blessing of God to the nations. I mean, they were incredibly, you know, prophetic songs of how this mighty people of God, the, the seed of Abraham, they were going to fill the earth with glory, they were going to bring the blessing of God to the nations, it was all going to be light and peace and order and beauty and wonder. I mean, it was all terrific stuff, but it was totally unreal compared with the kind of life that they were living. They would troop along to this little building on the corner every Saturday in their special little black clothes with their big black sort of look and they'd sit there and read the scriptures and go away again. And because there was nothing else to do, they started to argue and argue and argue about the exact meaning of the scriptures. And that's where the Pharisees sprang up and the doctors of the law. They began nitpicking about all the finer points of the scriptures. You see, doesn't it sound rather familiar to you? And they became prisoners of the whole Babylonian system. Now Babylon to me just speaks of that whole world system that, that, that acts independently and rebelliously against God. It isn't just the Church of Rome as some have taught us, it includes that whole uh, religious system that's in rebellion against God and, the, and that's, that's the biggest system of all in the world. It was Karl Barth who once said, he said, religion is man's ultimate rebellion against God. There's a lot of truth in that, isn't it? It's the whole um, uh, economic system, it's the whole political system, it's the whole monetary system, the whole business is Babylon. And, and the church that I was born into, when I got saved, uh, in the, uh, when I was almost 30, and, and went along to the local church, I tell you, I discovered that that's exactly where the church is. There's a little building, 
which would take about a hundred people and we'd have our little meetings and we were, we were totally powerless, we were just in prisoners of the whole Babylonian system. We had to go and get permission, don't we, to, have to hold a street meeting to preach about Jesus. We had to get permission from Babylon to alter the building that we worship God in. We had to get permission from Babylon, we had to go to Babylon and ask them to give us a financial loan to make some alterations to our buildings. We're absolutely prisoners of the Babylonian system. But that's not the way God wants us to be. We're supposed to be the head, not the tail. We're supposed to be lending, not borrowing. And all the characteristics that I see which were true of that people in captivity, I find that it's true of the church as I came to Christ. That was the characteristic of that church. And, and as you try and find buildings now to hold meetings in, you'll find that most of the buildings are, you know, most of the evangelical buildings which were built through this century, they were built to hold one or two hundred people. And we are just a joke. If we're mentioned at all, which we're not usually mentioned at all by Babylon, if we're portrayed on the television, we're always portrayed as a lot of bunch of idiots. I mean, the average picture of the, of, of the vicar, you know, he's a sort of, oh, this is all he's saying. He's made it look as ridiculous and as stupid and as irrelevant as he can be, because that's how the world perceives us. We've become a joke. Have you read Psalm 137? Our tormentors said to us in Babylon, sing us some of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of Zion in a captive place? I've hung my harp up on the weeping willow tree, you know. I mean, I've, I've, the whole thing's become unreal. You know, and to most people, the idea of being God's rulership, of God being the source of God's glory, of God's nations being blessed and 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 emancipated through the church. The whole thing is so ridiculous, they think you're out of your mind if you talk this way. Because we see we've lived in captivity. Just a little synagogues and men, most, many, many Christians, I won't say most, but many, many Christians in Britain, in my view, have been born with the synagogue mentality. Which is not very different to a village mentality. We're, we're programmed to smallness, one or two hundred at the most. We can't have any effect on society. We can't expect to do anything. We'll just have our little irrelevant meetings in our little building on the corner of the street and we'll go along. We don't go on Saturday, we go on Sunday now, but otherwise it's the same. We read our scriptures, we argue about finer points of doctrine and, and we're, we're interviewed into all this ridiculous hassle when the world outside is, is getting darker and blacker and we don't realise that there's the power in us properly applied to change the very history of our nation. And then out of that great captive company, the call of God came through the prophets and through the prayers of Daniel, particularly. Daniel was a man who, who saw this thing and got hold of God that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Again, I haven't time to talk about Daniel, but he was a mighty intercessor. He didn't just sit there and say, oh, isn't it wonderful that God has said in his word that Cyrus the king of, Cyrus is going to come and liberate our people. I can sit here drinking ice drinks and wait for God sovereignly to do it for me. Or the prophet Jeremiah says that after 70 years my people will return from captivity. So I can just sit here relaxing in my, you know, my knowledge of God and just wait for it to happen because God sovereignly said it. 
No, what, he, what for him was, the fact that God had sovereignly said it was, it motivated him to get on his knees and pray the word of God into existence. And it was the prayers of Daniel, laying hold of God for what the promises of Scripture said, which, which caused Cyrus, the king of Prussia, the greatest ruler of any political system which the world up to that time had ever known, was got hold of by one man on his knees, and he was forced to do the will of God, beloved. Now that's the power that we hold, if only we would believe it. And Cyrus suddenly wakes up and says, oh, we must, let the, we must let the Jews go back and build again the tabernacle and build again the city and he releases them to go and Daniel's praying away and, and of that vast number of people who called themselves the people of God, the majority were too comfortable in Babylon to want to go. They'd rather have their little synagogues on the corner of the street and, and live on the, the benefits of the Babylonian system because they'd got their kids in good schools by now and they had good career prospects and he was running a good, you know, a good business. And after all, it was going to be too costly to go back on that crazy pioneer business with all those restoration people. And so the majority didn't go, but some did go. But even those that came back, they started to rebuild again the tabernacle of David, but after four years, even they gave up and said, oh, it's not time yet to build the house of the Lord. After all, there's a bit of pressure. It's getting a bit uncomfortable. Let's concentrate on building for ourselves more comfortable homes. Now, I believe you can see that either materially or you can see it spiritually. And it's so easy, even amongst the pioneer people of God, for us to lose our cutting edge. After a few years, if God doesn't do it click, click, click like that, then we begin to get disappointed. And so after four years, they, they decided the time wasn't right and they stopped. Now I see this in terms of, of, of being diverted by seeking more and more comfortable lives materially, or more and more comfortable lives spiritually. You know, it's... Just imagine a physical army where, where the defence budget was spent on more and more food for the troops. You know, we're going to, have, we're going to employ lots of dietitians, we're going to cook more and more tasty food, and we're going to give the soldiers in our army the most wonderful food that an army's ever had, and we're going to spend the whole defence budget on feeding them with the best possible food available. Or, we say, well, what we want is we want our troops to be the healthiest troops. So we're going to spend all the whole defence budget on better and better hospitals, we're going to, we're going to have psychiatrists and, and you know, all kinds of medical staff, so that any soldier with the slightest need, physically or emotionally, we're going to meet that physical and emotional need, and we're going to concentrate all the defence budget on a better and better medical service for the troops. But you know, an army is actually supposed to be a fighting force primarily. It does need a good medical corps, it does need a good catering corps, but that's not what the army's for. It's finally supposed to fight and win battle. But what we find, honestly, is if we look at Christianity in the West, what's the resources spent on? More and more teaching seminars on how to have more and more understanding of finer and finer points of truth, isn't it? Or endless seminars on how to be, have all your physical and emotional needs met. We're, we're just a great big hospital. Or a great big catering corps. And the thrust 
to take the gospel into the world and to take the, the, the army of God in, in all-out assault against the powers of darkness, there's very little time or resources spent on that. There's a friend of mine once went into a church in America and across the end of this church was written um, our goal to evangelize the world in one generation. It was written in great letters across the end of this building. And then he discovered that they had allocated out of a five million dollar income, they allocated five hundred dollars a year to evangelism. And even that hadn't been spent for the last two years. But teaching seminars galore and, and how to have all your needs and hurts met in Jesus. I mean, seminars after seminars after seminars on these things. Now, they've, all, they've got their place. We do want a healthy army, and we do want to be properly fed. But finally, we're an army. And so the whole synagogue mentality brings us, even if we pioneer into restoration, the temptation seems to be, let's settle down and make ourselves comfortable. It's one of the biggest dangers that we can all experience, personally or corporately. And it was after four years of intercessory prayer of Daniel, which brought the foundations of the temple into place, that as far as I could discover, he ceased prophesying, and a number of the experts say it was probably the year that Daniel died. He'd be about 85 years of age by then. See, when God lost his man, he, it, it, it held the whole thing up till God could find another man. You see that? So in the Restoration Scriptures, we find all this teaching on how, when the people were in captivity and prisoners of Babylon, how God called them back and promised that he was going to restore everything that had been lost. And that's a tremendous subject you could... I mean, I, I and many other teachers around the world have taught for hours on this whole I mean, subject through Ezra, through Nehemiah, through the prophets. And the reason that it's so important is because it, it's exactly where we are spiritually as a church. God's calling his people out of our spiritual Babylon, out of our spiritual synagogues that we have lived in to build again the temple and the city in order that the purpose of God for his people, that we should be the blessing of the whole earth, that we should be a mighty nation, that through us the powers of darkness should be driven back with the resultant blessing upon all people, that these things should be actually fulfilled. And the place that God started to, to restore the whole thing was to build again the, the tabernacle and then to build again the city. And it's full of rich typology. They first built the temple, leaving their synagogues, and then they built the, then they built the city. And, and I haven't really time, as I would like to, to go into all this in, in great detail. Just a couple of things I want to say as we continue on. Uh, we read in Nehemiah chapter 3, for example, that they were all building apart, and each one seemed to be building a part nearest to their own home, but they were all aware that they were building the one city. And they had one overall governor, and his name was Nehemiah. They had one overall government, which coordinated the whole thing. 
And they weren't all building their own autonomous, independent, totally separate little bits of wall. And don't you dare tell me what to do with my bit of wall. They were aware that they were doing something together under one government. The other thing that I want you to notice is this, that in Nehemiah 4, that when they started to build the wall, there was a tremendous battle over the wall. There was more fury and more opposition and more hell let loose over building that wall over any other part of building either temple or city. Because you see, when you've built a wall, one thing you decide is who's in and who's out. Up to that point of time, you could just sort of wander in and wander out and you didn't know who was and who wasn't part of the city, but now you knew. And of course, once the wall was built, they re-established the gates. 